Yo, 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 it's your motherfucking boy, the Mark Rob, aka Sean Mad Love, aka Gordon Darks, aka Pacey Twitter, aka 4i Willie, coming at you with a new episode of We Should Do This Again Sometime. This week's episode features two guests one returning, Brother Matt, and one new, the love, Greg, aka Grog. <laughs> This episode was originally slated to review the first two Evil Dead films, but Netflix's Blonde happened. <laughs> Blonde, which stars Honor Amos and is directed by Australian director and screenwriter Andrew Dominic. It's based off the 2000s novel of the same name by Joyce Carol Oates. From the Netflix summary of Blonde, this is a bold reimagining of Marilyn Monroe's life story. To begin the episode, we talk about how the film has no regard nor shows Marilyn any kind of grace or respect, whether it's her legacy as being a pop icon, movie star, or just a person. In the show description, I've linked two pieces, one from writer Angelica Jade Bastian entitled The Hollow Impersonation in Blonde. She wrote it for Vulture. In the piece, Angelica writes how Marilyn is played as an eternal victim. Also, Kat and I discuss Andrew Dominic's interview with the British Film Institute's Sight and Sounds magazine, which is pretty revealing and gross also. I highly recommend reading both pieces rather than watching the actual movie. The film itself is rather graphic and shameless, so if you decide you want to watch it for yourself, please do it at your own discretion. After the blonde talk, Kat talks Halloween ends, and then the group pivots to Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 1 and 2. So, thanks for listening. And hope you enjoy. Peace. I got to get this out the way right now. Andrew Dominic, fuck this guy. There's kind of no way around it. Like this guy is a, is a piece of shit. Like, like it's it's remarkably horrible. The product he made and his shitty comments. So I find it really interesting that Tiber actually amended his review after stuff came out from the director, like quotes, and actually dropped it a half star. So it went from one and a half to one. Christina Newland just wrote an interview for Sight and Sound, which is like the British Film Institute magazine. So it's like a pretty big deal. And uh, it seems like he just doesn't give a shit about Norma Jean and is incapable of seeing Marilyn as anything but hot and sad. Does he even see her as hot? Like, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but he sees her as like, Hot to her own detriment. Like, she can't handle being hot. Yeah. Cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale about being hot and also a woman and also being sad at the same time. And by, like, continuously infantilizing her, he's made it increasingly clear that I don't think he even read Blonde, which is not true. Like, that's a work of fiction. I don't think he even read that, which does at least give her a little bit of inner life. So this whole thing of... He supposedly sat with the material and talked with people who knew Marilyn. But throughout that movie, he showed her no grace. I believe Mark Robb tapped out. Is that correct? Yeah. So I was uh, I was in Dallas. And for whatever reason, I like woke up at like 4.30. And I just said, fuck it. I'll just fire it up. And I made it through an hour. And then at that hour mark, there's apparently multiple abortion scenes in the movie. I made it to the first one. 
and it was extraordinarily gross. And I hit the eject button. Like I literally could not continue because everything before was was bullshit anyway. It, it was a really fucking shit show. It, it was really bad. Like I think he tried to make up for. I, I, you know, I'm not even gonna make excuses for him. He's a piece of shit. So I'm not even gonna try to get into his mind or whatever. Yeah, but, I'm just gonna read a couple of quotes from him that I really just want people to consider before they watch this movie. First of all, he said that Marilyn was living an unexamined life, which is uh, wild considering that she is perhaps the most examined person on the planet. Exactly. I think the film is about a meaning, uh, the meaning of Marilyn Monroe, or a meaning. She was symbolic of something. She's the Aphrodite of the 21st century, uh, or 20th century, the American goddess of love, and she killed herself. So what does that mean? To which Ty uh, quickly types in, beats me, isn't that why you made the beep movie? <laughs> and then uh, this was also cut from the initial interview, but this was included. And this is the one that made me upset because she cut it from the interview, which I think probably makes sense for the cadence of the interview. But I do think it says the most about him as a director choosing to make this film and why it's an abhorrent decision. And he should not be allowed to like touch cinema ever again. So he says, she's somebody who's become this huge cultural thing in a whole load of movies that nobody ever watched, right? Does anybody really watch Marilyn Monroe movies? At to which the interviewer said, I mean, I do. A lot of my colleagues and friends do. Gentlemen prefer blondes is one we watch a lot. To which he says, really? What is it about then? Giving her a pop quiz on the fucking movie. Like. And, and she says, it has a worldview that is quite cynical about men and gender relations in a way that I think a lot of contemporary young women like and relate to. It affords Marilyn's character the credit of her wit, and she gets one-upmanship on men. She's not a dumb blonde, not really. And to which he says, it's cynical about men, too. And she says, yes, maybe, but it's also glamorous. It's a fantasy. And he says, what, because they're well-dressed? And she says, sure. And he says, they're well-dressed whores. I don't know. Why, it's... <laughs> Like, that's such a piece of shit. Like, it's so bad. Like, even from that it's interview. The, it's the, I don't know that gets me. Like, then why did you make a movie about it? Yeah, th exactly. Why are you spending so much of your time when you clearly don't care about Marilyn Monroe or what she represents to people at all? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess just a, I hate women and this is the capital W woman. Yeah. And Anna de Armas has told all these stories about moments where Marilyn's ghost, like, weighed in. That she's was... like, well, 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 let me just say, though, uh, several, like, people who believe in, like, spirits and whatever were like, oh, you thought those were cute? She was fucking angry. Like, yeah. books falling off of bookshelves are not things a happy ghost oh, does. Oh, God. I'm hearing I'm hearing this and I'm like, is this another Jim Carrey as Andy Kaufman situation where someone is taking things a bit too seriously to the point of uh, they believe they're possessed? Is, is is that what we're dealing with here? I mean, Anika Armas <laughs> seems to think that Marilyn came to her and shown her approval upon the film Blonde. Yeah. And anyone who's ever cared even a little bit about Marilyn is like, wait, what the fuck was that? Especially because based on some of the, the beats of the film, it seems more like a biopic of other different starlets that existed at that time, which is fine, but then don't conflate it with Marilyn Monroe. I think one of the wildest quotes 
in the interview was at at the beginning when he said, "I'm not interested in reality. I'm interested in images." And the movie itself, if you want to talk about like artsy fartsy like shit that like he pulls off, like okay, like you got it off. You filmed beautiful, gross, abhorred things. Congratulations to you. But your your story, it's remarkably dangerous to how we talk about women. It it shows women no respect. It shows her no respect. And one of the things also in an interview that was really crazy was the idea of the woman asked a question as far as, will viewers take your work literally for what her life was? And he was like, it doesn't matter. Well, you're taking one of the most iconic pop people. And this is a story that's going to be on Netflix. So millions of people will have access to what this is. Like... You and, have and no responsibility at all. Like, this shit is crazy. Also, it does fucking matter. Yeah. This is a woman who is one of the most well-documented people on the planet. And you basically just are like, I read one book that in the introduction says it is fiction. Marketing it as a biopic and saying every other source, of which there are probably millions, are wrong. She does not have a rich in her life. She is a whore, and, like, I am annoyed by this whore getting this attention, so I am laying her low. I kind of call bullshit on him saying that he is only interested in images or anything, because if if that was actually true, he wouldn't have actually made it a biopic and based the entire, the entire marketing campaign is about the real Marilyn or whatever. Yeah. He would have just made, like, Marilyn Monroe the yeah. the like fictional character that is like a, a very like, sexy rabbit yeah um yeah like. <laughs> or he could have made if you just wanted to do images he could have done a project like they just did with david bowie and moon age daydream where that is a lot of music and footage and interviews contextualized in how he is discussing the character he's playing or the performance he's giving yeah. And it's almost like an audiovisual collage. If you want to do images, let's get fucky with that cuz that exists. We have our diaries, we have our letters. Get Ana de Armas to do her Marilyn voice over that because a lot of her stuff is written and do a do a, an audiovisual collage piece then if that's what you care about. Yeah. If you want to fictionalize like real people's lives, to be very honest, I don't necessarily have a problem with it. Like the Woman King that just came out, that movie's is a really well acted movie, a really sh- well shot movie. Is a hundred percent accurate? No, it's not. Malcolm X, my favorite movie of all time, is that a hundred percent accurate to Malcolm X's life? It's not. But Spike and Denzel and the rest of the cast, they took real responsibility and real care about his story. So. You know, while there's, like, the Baines character, for example, that's that wasn't a real person. But at the same time, like, it articulated, you know, his conversion and then also his loss of faith within the, the nation of Islam. So while the person isn't real, the actual feeling of the story is still real. So you can fictionalize parts of these people's lives and you can still get it off. But this was... This is just completely, it was just and, completely not it. And, and and what you're hitting on is really the responsibility of any filmmaker that's making a biopic is accurately representing what was this person about? What did they stand for? What did they not stand for? What were certain events in their lives that might have shaped them? You can change details around, but as long as 
just like the the their attitude. As long as it passes the vibe check, as long as we can reasonably recognize this person as an accurate representation of who the real person actually was. Um, yeah. And, you know, like you mentioned, Mal- Malcolm X is a fantastic movie that I love. Bohemian Rhapsody is hit or miss. I think it mostly gets who Freddie Mercury was. And Blonde, a movie that, again, I haven't seen, but I do want to say a couple of things about. First of all, it sounds like uh, they wanted to go for something like the Bob Dylan biopic, I'm Not There, where they're reflecting different episodes of someone's life using different characters, but trying to accurately represent who Bob Dylan was. I'm guessing that Blonde failed in that respect. I think fundamentally the problem with Blonde is that no one, with the exception of maybe Ana de Armas, seems to actually think that Marilyn Monroe was a person with value. So they yeah. are automatically and, casting and her as not anybody who matters. Like they are they are quite literally making a movie trying to deconstruct why people like her. It's it's a slander piece, yeah. is what it is. They're going, she was, a, she was a slut and an idiot and she was depressed and she probably deserved to kill herself, which was never even proven, by the way. Like, there's a ton of evidence mm-hmm. that shows it was an accident to this day. Like, we do not know. There is no definitive answer on that. That's a huge slap in the face to anyone who's ever admired her, certainly, from it's what you're describing. It's a huge slap in the face to her. She was a real person. Her as well. Yeah. Yeah. The way the movie sets up is basically... You start with her as a child with her mom, and her her mother has serious mental deficiencies. And throughout the first hour of the movie, this is basically just a person with no joy, no experiences, no kind of fun, doesn't have any kind of self-worth. They're basically just this beautiful bag of flesh moving around Hollywood, getting taken advantage of. And the only part that has any joy in the first hour is (laughs) she imagines two men who are two sons of former Hollywood actors and they basically double team her and it's supposed to represent this like awakening of I can be sexy but it's like good god I knew there was a reason (laughs) I couldn't watch this famously asexual Marilyn Monroe who married two different men for their intellect and wit, which I know is a weird thing to say about Joe DiMaggio, but that she, she did claim that's why she did it. <laughs> like, like, and, uh, and I, yeah, you, I think any, you think anyone married Arthur Miller for his sex appeal? Hilarious. Excuse me. Hilarious. Like, and I love him. And I honestly kind of wish that Adrian Brody was in a better movie because I feel like he is very inspired casting for him. But, like, I'll never know. You'll never know. I'm I'm not doing that. There are hundreds upon hundreds of pages of diaries where she's like, oh, he was very nice to me, and he was clearly interested in me in a way that I was not interested in him. Like, I will put up with sex, but I do not seek it out. And she, like, knew that it was marketable. Yeah. There's a, an amazing interview, and I think about this interview all the time, and it also recently came up when I was reading an analysis of Hannah Montana, so like that's a whole other side <laughs> quest I don't really have time to get into right now, but where she was walking down the street with this interviewer, and like she was still visibly Marilyn, but she was walking a little slumped, and she wasn't like talking like this, and and she went like, do you want to see me become her? And she like handed the interviewer the sweater 
and she stood up straight, tossed her hair, and then all of a sudden there was like three people deep, a ring around them. Marilyn, Marilyn! Like, and she knew how to do that. And that was not, that was not, oh, I can be, I can be a slut. Like, no, that was her being like, this is how I have to make it in this business. This is where the money is. Yeah. But she, she quite literally Clark Kent supermaned it whenever she could. Yeah. And this movie doesn't even afford her that respect. I think I want to wrap up this topic with talking about Honor Day Honest because I'm really conflicted on how I feel about her in this movie because I think on the one hand, actors got to work. And also, Mm -hmm. if you're billed to be like a pop icon, but then also someone that the role requires like a lot of dramatic weight, I think on the surface, I understand why an actor would jump for that. But I, I just don't see how a woman can read what was going to happen in that movie and then be comfortable with that. Like, it was just... It's... But you know you know who's predominantly men? The Academy. I mean... <laughs> yeah. And I'm not trying to say that's why she did it, but kind of seems like that's why she did it. Also, just just so the viewers at home, and by viewers I mean listeners, because we don't release video, I've been making the face like Kermit the Frog when the puppeteer makes a fist for most of this conversation. And I just feel that that's relevant (laughs) information for you all to have. Live from an undisclosed location in a basement in New York City, it's me, Crank, ruler, well, mayor of Dimension X and the producer of the hottest new pod in that dimension or this one, the Shredhead Pod, starring the Blasian Batty, aka Google Chrome Dome, aka Ado Nobu Nigga, aka my best friend, Oroku Saki, aka the Shredder. And we put aside our differences with the Ninja Turtles to be your weekly source of hot takes sports and entertainment news stay all the way and hear who Saki has named as his Cretan of the week and find something valuable in the shred commendations so we'll see you on apple stitcher spotify or wherever your pods are casts the shredhead pod is a member of a hyphen podcast group speaking of gilbert godfrey dying cat you want to talk to us about the halloween ends trailer transition uh yeah so we've been having a little bit of a problem at the publication i write for shout out nerd caliber come read my content sometime we didn't get invited to the halloween kills preview which is weird because we were usually invited to all the horror previews and uh, it turns out there was some turnover at the, the folks who arrange universals screenings whatever it's nobody's fault it's just you know they had an outdated email list we weren't on it so we emailed to remind them cool but I was while this all was going down, I was like, let me take a quick peekaroo at the uh, the old letterbox, see what we're doing. Four years after Halloween Kills is the first <laughs> like, <laughs> and I went, what? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> so they made the decision to do all of it on one night, and then they went except the last one, which is gonna be four years later. And it's like, Laurie Strode is loving life. We're going to college, baby. And I was like, I'm sorry. Laurie Strode is what? Living a life like a Laurie Strode is what? 
I know I told Cap, and I don't know if I ever told you my pitch for what Halloween ends should be about. It basically, okay, the town allows Michael to live in his childhood home in exchange for not killing people. And the plot of the movie is he goes to war with the local HOA. <laughs> Bowling them all I down. I haven't watched that over almost any <laughs> horror yeah. movie. Watch. Michael, Michael, we're not mad, but another Uber Eats driver went missing, and we just need to know, was it you? But yeah, so I was like, all right, well, they just made a whole to-do of, like, the last trailer has dropped, and, like, you know, whatever. So I was like, all right, Jamie Lee Curtis, you bitch, you've suckered me back in, you saucy dame, how could you do this to me? So I, I did the thing I hate to do when I watched the final trailer. And the uh, first line of the trailer is four years ago, he disappeared without a trace. Oh, man. Halloween ends is really going to have us all ended, isn't it? It's going to end us so, all. So the only it's, thing that's that been me out is the only reviews I've read so far are good. I mean, who's like, going to screen people, for it, though? This there, early. There's been, like, one screening in L.A., that was a test screening that had some critics at it. And I multiple people I know were at it. And they were like, yeah, it ended in a standing O. And yeah. I'm like, how? 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 How did we get back there from here? Because right now we're at like the Friday the 13th video game level of character development for, for everyone except Lori. And like, I have some concerns I have a lot of concerns, actually. My biggest concern was that David Gordon Green said, oh, it's actually going to be a metaphor for COVID. <laughs> and I went... God <laughs> and uh, David Gordon Green... Stop trying to make us think about COVID. It didn't happen. It's like, mm-hmm. in, in all of your worlds, it never happened. I don't want to think about it ever again. Prote- protesters marching through the Capitol yelling, evil dies tonight. <laughs> anyway... So this one's about COVID. Now, keep in mind, this man is making one of my most anticipated films of, like, the next two years because he's making a film about the, like, funding and uh, initial building of Disneyland. And now I'm just like, no, 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 leave Mickey out of this. And I I don't really know, like, I I don't know. I, I had a lot of respect for David Gordon Green as a filmmaker going into this. And after the first Halloween, I was like, mm-hmm. okay. Okay, and uh, now I'm just like, what? But I'm also now seeing, and I this is my fault for checking the tag on Twitter to give credit where it's due, but I did notice in one of the scenes in the teaser trailer, uh, Michael has all five fingers, which we know now, canonically, he doesn't have because Laurie shot him in the hand with a shotgun, and he's missing three of them on one hand. Maybe she turns into Michael Myers this movie. Maybe I think they do he started Friday. a cult. I think they're bringing back the cult bullshit. I think Michael is starting a cult of other little Michaels. Other little Michaels. They all bought vintage Shatner masks on eBay, and they all killed their local mechanics, and now they're they're coming for Lori. And yeah, that's my theory. I like to imagine <laughs> that Michael's cult lives in like an RV together. They all have like <laughs> little bunk beds. <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining like Scream Queens where they have the sorority and it's like, I'm Michael number one. That's Michael number two. Like, I, I just about Michael number three. There's Michael number four. I just have one question. And that is, 
How close is John Carpenter involved with the creative of this movie? He's an executive producer, and he and his son are doing the music again. Okay. The, the music by John Carpenter's shirt is evergreen, baby. But also, like, he just oh, wants to make enough money to keep unlocking skins on Fortnite. He doesn't <laughs> actually care. They're doing a Thing remake this year. Oh, wow. There's a remake of Big Trouble in Little China in the I works. I heard about that. With Dwayne The Rock Johnson attached to Star. Like, yeah, and watch that bullshit. He doesn't care. He's like, I made my movies, I made my money, I want to make Fortnite things and make music with my weird, creepy band. And I love that for him, honestly. He's an old fucking man. Let him do whatever he wants. Let him get that money, honey. But, like, I I appreciate people who are able to kill their darlings when it comes to writing. But I did not expect John Carpenter to maybe kill all of his in the span of a year and a half. Watch. Big Trouble in Little China remake somehow be more racist than a movie that came out 36 years ago. If they start making it right now, they could get the same guy to play Lopan, and that would be great. James Hong is a treasure. Give that man an Oscar, you cowards. Hey, what's up, everybody? WWE Hall of Famer, The Godfather here. Special shout out to B Hyphen and Handsome Bane for the WrestleCast Power Hour, and it's available everywhere. Podcasts or streams. So, everybody, check them out. You know, The Godfather will, and it's time once again for everybody at the Hyphen Podcast Group to come aboard the whole train. Our next film is Evil Dead Part 2, the sequel to a surprisingly popular low-budget horror hit. Director Sam Raimi has filled this film with dozens of wild creatures and the old, old story of somebody opening the Book of the Dead and thus letting out evil spirits. Now, you know, you can really learn valuable things from the movies. This is one of the parts that Roger and I really like about being a film critic. If you ever see a book on a table with the title, Book of the Dead... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Don't open it. Just walk on by, as Dionne Warwick said. Cat. so I think we really hit this month, the curation of this season. I think we hit our legitimate first speed bump. I picked these two films. I kind of threw up a Hail Mary, you know? I, I, I got the word of mouth. I was like, you know what? I'll give it a shot, put it on the docket. And that ball fluttered in the, out the back of the end zone. Is the we, game ended? I we lost wait. by fifty points. I... <laughs> I can't wait to talk about the Lost Boys and not have to talk about this anymore. But I'm aware that's not until next week. So, uh... I I, I want to rebound next week, but this week uh, we're going through Listen, it. Listen, as as soon as I saw the Lost Boys on the calendar, I'm like, I'm not going to mention that I've seen it. I'm not going to mention that I love it and I watch it sometimes when I'm sad because I'm afraid he's going to bump it from the calendar if he knows I've seen it already. No, um, hell no. I would have I, I, I may have I may have led with it this week if you had told me cat. <laughs> it's it's okay. We did uh, a thing that we needed to do and I'm going to start by saying this because I genuinely believe that this is true. I see what these movies did for the movies that came after it. And I appreciate what they did for the movies that came after it. 
I think that they laid down a really great groundwork of creative things you can do with a $3 budget. And I think that they also did a really interesting job of kind of basically in some ways reinventing the soft reboot or like the requel, which I guess is what we're calling it now. In I want to find whoever invented that term and Hilarious. do things I can't mention on this podcast. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> among the most unpleasant experiences I've ever had. You said <laughs> these movies were among the most unpleasant experiences you ever had. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. I So <laughs> I'll be honest. The rape and gaslighting in the first one uh, turned me off pretty, pretty well and good. Uh, and I was like, oh, so all these teenagers deserve to die now because they're all full of shit. Mm. And also, it seems like the takeaway from the Evil Dead is just, ew, gross. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and Matthew is, I know that Matthew is a fan of these movies, and I respect that about him. And I'd love to hear a little more of his perspective. But I think I mentioned in our thread on, on Twitter, uh, Mark, that I have a theory about why these didn't land for us. Before we get that, before we get that theory though, I want to give Matt some leeway to defend the Evil Dead. So hop on in. So one of the sort of big reasons I really love them is mainly the practical effects done on minuscule budgets and how good they were able to make it look with such like a. I mean, it was basically just like for all intents and purposes, it was a couple of friends who had bought a camera. And we're like, we want to make a movie. And I think there were probably a couple others before it that you could fit into that sort of category. But this was one of the first to really show audiences like, yeah, you can do this, too. It's not just all these big famous directors and stuff um, like you could just go off on your own and do it yourself. So that's sort of the more, I guess, like industrial aspect of why I like it. The other thing I don't have a way to express why this is the case with evil dead and not other films um it's just fucking fun <laughs> okay like, another wrong with that another wrong with that in my viewing it doesn't take itself seriously are you referring to evil dead 2 or the first I, evil dead i i will say i don't pretend that evil dead 1 doesn't exist but for the way that i view the series it is they made evil dead 1 with a minuscule budget it got really big and so they had enough money to do it properly this time and so i sort of see evil dead 2 as like oh this is what we wanted to do but we were constrained by budget and by time and etc 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 i just felt the need to clarify because i don't think there's a ton of fun stuff in the first evil dead yeah <laughs> evil dead 1 is like the the mixtape and then the evil dead exactly. 2 is like the album just the yes. album yeah. Greg, Greg, hop in. Yep. Uh, so I know, I think in your letterbox review, you said that at least one Evil Dead one had not aged well. But what's your history with movie in the past, and what is it today? So it had been a while since I had seen the the Evil Dead movies. It like had been over a decade, and so when I was uh, given the opportunity to kind of revisit them, to just kind of see them from the perspective of. Uh, an older guy in his 30s whose uh, taste in movies has uh, diversified. And, uh, you know, I was right there with Catherine watching them. And so my takeaway from the first Evil Dead is uh, I obviously understand what what they were going for. Like, 
my takeaway is okay. Th- their approach seems to be fuck around and find out for, for, <laughs> lack of, for, for, lack, for lack of a better approach. Like, okay, you know, we have this very small budget. We want to make this horror movie. We want to make an impact. We want to do something that's kind of never been seen before. We want to, you know, leave an impact. Sam Raimi's like, I want my career, damn it. So I'm going to put all my eggs. I'm going to put all my eggs in this one basket to leave, to leave an impact. And his approach was basically making the first Evil Dead as gross as possible. Yeah. Uh, he achieved that, yes. He achieved that, yes. As, as gross as possible, because it's obviously very, it's very light on plot. The rules within the movie of how someone becomes possessed are unclear because you know because like throughout the course of the movie bruce campbell gets bitten scratched everything happens to him yet he's able to stave off being possessed by the demons while they consume everyone else Um, including his girlfriend who gets stabbed by a pencil but not otherwise like touched sneezed on she always has her mouth closed when people are barfing Unlike Bruce Campbell. <laughs> I do not understand why Bruce Campbell was not the yep. like second person to become a zombie. <laughs> because whenever someone is spraying blood or bile, he's like, ah! He keeps his mouth very much open. And in the second movie, I guess, I guess is trying to answer that question because he gets possessed twice in the second movie. The first time he's able to isolate it to his hand and of course his solution is to chop off his hand and then it happens a second time and i guess we're supposed to believe that by sheer force of will he just how does he know he got it high enough there's no visible deterioration (laughs) are the same color so he just is like i guess here's fine this is where i don't feel the evil anymore like i'm very confused I'm, I'm, i'm guessing i'm guessing it's going by feel like okay this is clearly the line where I, on the on my arm where I don't feel, I don't feel evil. Where the grooviness stops. I believe the canon explanation is like once his hand was possessed, he couldn't control it anymore, and so it's like, oh well, I can control my arm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whether, whether or not you buy the explanations. I wish thing, that they had maybe explored that though, because that to yeah. me would have been a little more interesting. Can a possessed elbow do much damage though? I mean, he it is dragging himself towards the knife that he's or the uh, hatchet that he's going to use to kill himself. I mean, I mean so clearly it can do some something because he's I mean, passed I mean, out, but the arm the arm is still down to party. I mean, as we know from The Rock and Randy Savage, an elbow can do a lot of damage. Touche. Touche. I think that the second one was where I was starting to understand like the filmmaking language, the cadence. I felt there were honestly better character relationships. Like everything, it, everything was improved upon from the first one. I also think though, and this is, can I get into my theory now? Absolutely. I think we saw this movie too late. Oh yes. This is like, there you mm-hmm. go. I think that this is like a lot of other movies that we've covered where you're like, but this is foundational. And I'm like, cool. I've seen other ones that have done it better that aren't sexist and horrible. You know, we, we've covered that a lot on this podcast. 
And I think that this is one of those cases where we've seen so many movies that were clearly inspired by this in the aftermath. The one that springs to mind is Cabin in the Woods, which is a favorite of mine. It's pretty good. That has taken the source material that was pioneered by this movie and other movies like it and made it into its own recontextualized thing. Because basically Cabin in the Woods, the more I was thinking about it, is really like if Evil Dead 2 met Scooby-Doo. And and I think sometimes uh, with uh, certain... Yes. Uh, And in certain movies, though, it can be really hard to go back to, like, the the birthplace of the tropes you already like in other things. Because at that point, they just seem boring. And I think in this case, both Mark and I were maybe a little too Mm future-proofed towards this movie before we saw it. So if we had seen it when we were a little younger or a little less, like, into pre-existing horror stuff, maybe it would wow us more. Because I do think everything about the movie fundamentally works. Yeah, It just didn't wow me. I did get a little boat sick, I will be honest. There's a lot of camera movement. I told Kat, watching at least Evil Dead 2, it's like you're you're at a comedy show, the comedian makes a joke, your brain registers why the joke is supposed to be funny, other people around you are laughing, and I'm just like, a joke was made. All right. But Cabin in the Woods is a great example of that. Cabin was actually pretty good. It's it's really good. Uh, that was a good example you brought up, Cap. But Matt, what are your Evil Dead Two thoughts? Because I I do agree with you that Evil Dead Two. I think they were at that time around they were smarter enough to fall into the the comedy of it more. You know how like Marvel does like the we're gonna do the joke and we want you to know that we're in on the joke too. I feels like it's trying to do that. And maybe that's why I didn't really jive with it or whatever. But what are your thoughts on Evil Dead 2? I think it's a marked improvement on the first one, definitely. Yeah. In fact, I don't think that I've actually watched the first one since the first time I watched it. When I want to return to the series, I always just watch Evil Dead 2 because it's <laughs> basically the first half of that movie is Evil Dead 1. And then you get the rest of the movie, which is... Can, can I just hop in real quick? That's not Linda. That's not what she looks like. That's not... It's not even in the ballpark. Yeah. Well, the reason they did that was a rights issue. Ama- amazingly, Sam Raimi didn't have the rights to use footage from the original Evil Dead when he was making Evil Dead 2. So his, his solution was basically just to do like a shortened remake or a reboot or whatever, but basically redo the first movie in the opening act, eliminating all the characters except Ash and Linda, and then just proceed from there. He, uh, he made a requel. <laughs> I don't know who's keeping track of points, but how many points do you get docked for saying requel? I love you, Matthew. Please don't hurt me. <laughs> yes. Hilarious. Yes. Matt, Matthew, you're in charge of uh, docking points anytime someone uses the word requel. Not counting the times I'm using it because I'm using it to criticize the use of it. <laughs> I'll allow it. Requel. 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 Do you want to see Scream 6 early or not? Put your hands Wow. Well. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I think they. It was, I think, a smart move to take the series in a slightly more comedic direction because the advantage of it is you can still have the gore but it doesn't feel as icky no pun intended and i may be alone in this but personally when watching horror movies especially like a slasher movie or anything gory i view the 
supporting cast as basically a hit list. Um, and it's just, yeah. when, when is this person going to die and how are they going to die and how, how awesome is it going to look? Yeah. Um, and I think that Evil Dead 2, it feels like it is almost like the personification of the movie is sitting next to me like, oh, yeah, when are they going to die? Yeah. The special effects and the funness of it, like, I can see why people like it. For me, it was kind of like, I, I did wish that I, I cared about Ash and mm-hmm. I wish I cared about the other people in it. We joked about Scream, but I mean, Scream is a franchise with multiple people that I, I you know, cared about. Yeah. Even if I, like for Gail, like Gail is kind of a, and sometimes she's a little bit questionable, but you develop a fondness for her. But even in Scream 4, like, they did a really good job, and I don't like Scream 4, and I think we've established that pretty well, or Scriforum, if you will. But uh, (laughs) I I cared about the characters pretty quickly. I didn't want anything bad to happen to Kirby or Jill. They do a really good job of establishing that care, and I felt that maybe, and maybe that's part of the, like, postmodern bend or whatever. (laughs) But I feel like even Halloween goes out of its way to make you at least interested in Lori, even if you don't care about her. I will say that I do think that the one of the biggest weaknesses of the Evil Dead series is it is not there for the characters. It is saying, this is a weird comparison, but like a sort of like circusy. Cir- yeah. It's like, look at this ridic- spectacle. ridiculous spectacle, spectacle crazy spectacle. thing. Yeah. Who gives a shit about <laughs> who is doing it or who it's happening to? And that's and like the, fine, uh, but that's not why I like that doesn't scare me. Yeah. And that yeah. doesn't really even like interest me. Like the Cirque du Soleil that I like to go to are the ones that have story. Mm. Even if it's yeah. a very loose story, I care more when it's about something. Mm. Even though yeah. maybe what they're doing is cool. And I feel like Ash is just like the guy that says groovy sometimes in the second movie and makes faces and always has his mouth open. <laughs> and, and like, I, out. I cared more about the girl in the khaki shorts who like came home to see her parents because she found the missing pages. Mm-hmm. And like, after they let her vomit out her exposition, they never developed her further. Yeah. It is the kind of the single uh, iota of character development you get. But yeah, but, but yeah, I do I do get uh, what uh, what Matthew's saying about kind of seeing the supporting cast almost like a hit list, how they're going to die, what's going to happen to them, like uh, the, the 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 moment in the second movie where Bobby Joe runs out of the cabin, you're like, oh, she's dead. It's just a matter of what's going to happen exactly. Yeah, yeah I will say mm-hmm. I think the the second one does a better job with that than the first because in the first one I'm like, all right, they're going to turn into a deadite and they're going to yell something. And then someone's going to dismember them or not dismember them enough. I appreciate that the kills in the second movie are less random because like the, the possessions and the subsequent characters and what happens to him does seem kind of random. There's no, there's no sense of how long it takes for the demons to actually possess them. And for all the crazy shit, all that eighties fucking demon makeup, which just looking at that, you can imagine just how much it would have sucked to wear how much agony they must have been wearing all that shit. Yeah. 
Can I just say, I love the serendipity of, we talked about three different movies from two different directors from vastly different genres, but how Blonde in the first two Evil Deads literally don't care about the people. They only care about the body horror that's going on. But the thing is, you see the differences or the extremes of where one can take it in a very negative space and one can still be you can learn from one and you can enjoy it in some respects and yeah how one really fucking sucks really fucking terrible. not not to bring it back to the thing but to bring it back to the thing i think that the thing the thing that i really admire about the thing is that it uses the way that you get to know the characters to make the body horror more horrifying mm-hmm like, that's your friend who is now a terrifying head spider. Like, that's someone you know. And and I wish that the Evil Dead movies gave us a little more depth to those characters. So that way, when they do die, you're like, oh, my God. Uh, or even to bring it back to Halloween. I hate continuing to compare these movies to Carpenter, but they're what I've been watching recently. So, you know, sue <laughs> me. But the idea that the the babysitter who, who ends up with the Here Lies Judith Myers headstone, she thinks her boyfriend killed her. Oh, like, yeah. yeah. You, yep. We know her well enough to know that she thinks her boyfriend is being a smartass with the sheet. And when he stabs her, she thinks her boyfriend just killed her. Because that we we've kind of seen her enough to know that's how her brain works, and like yeah. that makes that so much more mm-hmm. devastating. So I was kind of thinking that what was going to happen to the the girl in the khaki shorts was that she was going to try to go down to save her mom into the basement, and something was going to happen there, and that would have made a little more sense based on how we established her. But that's not what happened. And then apparently there's a blender down there because all of a sudden they're just mm-hmm. throwing chunks of this man everywhere. And I get that it's meant to be a spectacle and that's fine, but make the spectacles matter and people will care more. Yeah. Is kind of how I feel about it. I like that creature and some of the intentionally stupid dialogue at the beginning of this picture. But eventually, I'd say after about 30 minutes, this film really wore out its welcome with more creatures than human characters. This is a case, I think, of a film that is a lot of frosting and very little cake. It ran out before the end. There was not enough inspiration to go for the whole time, but I really liked what did work, enough that I would recommend the movie. What the director here, Sam Raimi, is doing is satirizing all kinds of movie genres. The basic movies that he's satirizing in this movie are the Three Stooges movies. For example, the scene where the hand gets cut off and it keeps hitting the guy on his head and he has to put it down, and other scenes like that. Then there is a a takeoff on Taxi Driver. Mm -hmm. The scene that we just saw, the ballet dance, where she lets her head roll down her arm and puts it back on again, that's Fred Astaire. And there are seven or eight other movie references in this film. It's not just a horror film. It's very clever and very funny. But it did run out for me. I got tired. I wanted something more than a little, you know, those are like seven little clips mm-hmm. strung together. And I would like a film that had a continuing story because, again, this film just has nothing to really say except the technology. I thought it was more technology than story. Well, it was trying to be a bunch of comic one-liners. And it, it la- is. for and me, it, it lasted for the first hour. Okay. It lasted for the first hour. And also, you wanted a movie you thought it would be more interesting. If you could have seen what she had for lunch in this movie, you get to see what he has for lunch. If you've enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate us 5 stars, leave a review and tell a friend to tell a friend. Follow Cat at Cat underscore Chinetti on Twitter, 
Twitch, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Follow Marcus, at Madlov, S-H-O-W-I-N-M-A-D-L-O-V, on Twitter and Letterboxd. Follow the show on Twitter at Cat and Mark. This podcast is executive produced by Kellen Conley and Eric Greenlee. Thanks for listening. We should do this again sometime. This is a hyphen podcast production.